All right. Um, we've said that if you fly way back up and look back down, there are really two dimensions to parenting and to relationships in general. I've called them love and limits. That's a whole show in itself. As parents, as, you know, you've heard me ask in questions uh, last night, as parents, you will tend to lean toward one side of this or the other. One of you more lovey, one more limity. Like in our family, I was kind of Captain Von Trapp, having the children march in line with a whistle. And Norma was like singing with them in the bed and making clothes out of the drapes, you know. So, But you will tend to go back and forth. So we've just talked about limits um, and now we can talk about love. And we have to do it in that order because given the nature of what children are like, we have to have the limit piece, the discipline piece, kind of down in order to have the peace and sanity to show the love. Okay? I mean, if the house is being run by a little terrorist with the bazookas running around, we're not going to have, you know, nobody's going to get much loving. So we got to have the limits first. But that's not ground zero. The limit piece practically speaking, is very helpful. But bottom line, I think, you know, limits are great, but they're never seen, even biblically, as an end in itself. Biblically speaking, authority and rules and law and limit are not the end in itself. They're always seen as a handmaiden, a tool for something else. And I believe that is abiding love. I mean, think about what God does with his authority. He doesn't use his authority to exercise his rule over us. God uses his authority in order to create a context, an opportunity to open his heart to love us, to abide with us. And so I think our parenting should do the same thing as well. So yeah, set limits on irresponsible little bandits like we talked about earlier, but do that so we can have a loving relationship with our kids and teach them about love and help them build a grounding rooted and grounded in love. So we're going to talk about love in our kids and we're not doing that to sort of have a touchy-feely group hug. The kind of love we're going to talk about as I mentioned last night isn't sort of schmoopy schmoopy Mr. McFeely kind of stuff. It's actually really about helping how do we, here's the question, how do we build in our kids a core sense that they can carry around of feeling belonging and safe and seen and connected and wanted, all right? That let you in and keep you in peace that we talked about in the marriage conference, all right? So we want our kids to feel lovey-lovey, but what we're talking about today is actually one of the most powerful forces in the lives of your children that lies behind so much uh, the, it's, its absence lies behind so much pathology. A lot of what I do in terms of healing and helping people with depression or anxiety or addictions is helping them make sense of what their hearts do with wounds of love, of having uh, poor answers to some of these questions. So uh, w- one way of looking at this is this. Basic principle is... That kids live their lives asking what I call core questions about their hearts, their lives. They're asking these questions of their parents, of their inner circle, implicitly or explicitly or tacitly or overtly. They're asking questions about how life works and about who they are all the time. Questions like, do you want me 
You know, like real me, not like good boy me. Do you want me? Is it okay for me to be strong? Is it okay for me to be needy? Is it okay for me to feel stuff? What if I disagree with you? How big a deal is that? How big a deal is it if I fail? If I let you down? Could you give me a vibe for that? And kids are asking these core questions all the time, implicitly and explicitly, by what they see, by what they experience. And the answers that they get from us and their inner circle and their peers and their, 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 their siblings are going to really, in a lot of ways, define a lot of how they live. Now, we can change the answers to those questions later on if we re-engage it. That's that conference on growth I'm talking about. That's why therapy works. That's what the body of Christ does. I get to re-ask some of my core questions later in life. But they're thinking these questions inside all the time. And fortunately and unfortunately, they're getting answers to these questions all the time in the relationships they have with us. Okay? No pressure or anything, right? So as we're talking this morning about love, we're not talking about having a family group hug. We're talking about how can you get real heads up and aware and conscious about how to be giving the best answers to those core questions, all right? Once they get that and once they're shown with good limits that they're not, you know, Jay-Z, then that kid's going to be an unstoppable adult, all right? So two ways we teach them that, as we said last night. We're going to tell them and we're going to show them. Again, we are teaching love. Parenting is so much about teaching. Show them is going to be the most important. It's going to be where we spend most of our time. But as I told you last night, you need to tell them. And as I reminded you last night, my favorite formula for that is don't just say I love you. I want you to talk to your children about how they affect you. Remember? You know what? You make your dad really happy. I smile when I think about you. I like to watch you play. We check on you and look at you when you're asleep. I think you're a cool guy. I want them to know and hear from me verbally how you affect me, what it's like to be with you. Opposite your marriage here as well. This is some of what you can be doing in connecting with your spouse. So we're going to get all developmental here next, but don't miss this. You know, you've got to mouth use it. Right? Do tell them. But as we said, one of the most powerful ways that kids learn anything is through experience. So we're going to show them. In other words, like we said last night, there's a difference between loving somebody and doing love toward them, living lovingly toward them. So how do you do love to a kid? We're going to skip over the, you know, the easy ones, you know, spend time with your children, board games and Boy Scouts and that kind of stuff, and go a little deeper. What I want to talk about is, in a sense, kids have a love language too. And relating to our kids, showing them love, doing love in a way that it gets imprinted on them, in a lot of ways is about understanding how they hear love, how they experience love at their different ages and speaking that language back to them, okay? That's what does love and shows love. Now, at the end of this particular um, talk, 
it does not necessarily mean that your teenage boy is going to want to come plop down in the kitchen with you and say, hey, mom, let's just share. Okay, they're not going to do that. But I still want you to be real heads up on what it looks like to engage them. So how do we relate to kids to show love and teach them that at a core level? It's different at different ages. Different ages have different love languages. And so what we're going to do here in this talk is sort of go through infant, toddler, school age, and teen and talk about how they, what their love language is, how they experience love at those ages. Because it's different. Infants, how do you show love, do love to a squally little baby? Well, actually, this is one of the most important ages developmentally for learning core love because the questions are so basic and so pre-verbal. They're like, we're like writing code for the iOS here with an infant, okay? Think about it. What's it like to be an infant? Let's get inside their noggins. Well, they need a lot of stuff. There's a lot, they got a lot of problems. There's always something going in or coming out of one end or the other of them. And they're always hungry or thirsty or, or, or gassy or poopy. Or, or Norman and I used to joke, we'd hear you know, noises down there and we'd go, is it solid, liquid, or gas? You know? <laughs> and they have all sorts of feelings. Babies feel a lot. Anger, joy, uh, fear, aloneness. And they don't understand what's going on, much less can they do anything about it. So they're unhappy a lot. They're kind of helpless. And they got all this nasty, unpleasant junk going on. But herein lies one of the beginning points for teaching a baby about love. Because babies have all these little problems, right? But there's this nice lady and her big friend, and they keep coming around. And making these problems better, all right? They diaper and they feed and they hold. And, and, and I remember mine, you know, when, when, the, when they're hungry and they're desperate for that bottle and, bottle and you're making it as fast as you can. And you get them and you're trying to move the bottle toward their mouth. And they had that look on their face like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It happened. It happened. It's like, you know, okay. And it, and it continues to happen. And they start to learn. And this nice lady and her big friend give them this. And they start to learn the first part of love, the first bit of software, that the bad can be good again, that I can be nurtured, that I can have something that hurts and is unpleasant, and someone can engage and make it better. This is the attending phase, remember? We're attending here. So one of the first ways any of us learns about love is we learn that the bad can become good again, all right? Uh, there was a movement in the church years back of these people who said, you know, providing for a baby's needs on demand usurps the authority in the home and all that. Blech. This Babies aren't thinking about that. They're thinking, am I going to die or not? Am I okay? And we teach the grounding beginnings of love. We start going, you know, when you're needful, that isn't bad. People are there. Being needy is okay. It's safe and all right. Boom. That's love at the most core level. But there's more. They don't just feel loved. As time goes on, they start to get this pattern tattooed in their heart that that, that love and that connection is going to keep coming. It wasn't just okay then, it's going to be okay in the future. And they learn the second part, which is trust. Love isn't going to go away. It can be bad and it can be better again later. It can, it can, it can be okay. 
So nurture and trust, earliest parts of oxygen and hydrogen of, of teaching love. Now, this nurture thing for infants is usually about practical needs, you know, empty tummies and dirty britches and all that. But sometimes something else happens for baby. Sometimes everything's okay. All those little needs are taken care of. But the nice lady and her big friend actually hold him and cuddle him and goo-goo him and gaze into his eyes. And he starts to have this weird special feeling that I'm dear and I'm held and I'm with I'm one with somebody, and we have bonding, what the textbooks call mother-child reverie, that early emotional connection, that that for babies, that emotional eye-to-eye contact and connection is as important as food. So the second love language of this baby is someone with me. And you're going to hear me talk about with a lot in this lesson, because with, as we said last night, is is, is is the tool of love. And so he's learning it's not just that food is food that feels good. People feel good, all right? It is hardwired in babies to feel this. We had Callie when I was in school in Los Angeles. And um, I, I, I called her Pee-wee but so I could talk to her before she was born. We didn't know her gender. And so I would tap on Norma's tummy and go, hello, Pee-wee, come out and be with us. And we would talk to her all through her, her, um, her pregnancy and then she was born, we had, a, we had a California doctor who rode a, he drove a red Porsche Carrera with a license plate that said Stork One. It was very L.A. Anyway, so she's born and she's screaming and slimy and all this and they, they weigh her and clean her up and wrap her up. And she's still screaming and red faced and they hand her to me and I say, hello Pee-wee, welcome to life. And she went, it's hardwired in her to be connected foundational for for love on the other hand I was holding a baby boy not long ago and he and I were just in the zone man I was like bonded connected his eyes we were gazing it was beautiful and all of a sudden his eyes just rolled back in his head and he fell asleep and I said out loud I said why 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 I thought we were having a moment and you just disappeared you fell asleep on me and his mother from across the room says welcome to what it's like to be in a relationship with a man (laughs) So two ways babies learn about love. Basically, my needs will be met in the nurture thing and that eye-to-eye holding. And what I want you to get there is when you're doing this stuff, you're not just tending the baby. You're writing software, man. Okay? You're building layers of core connection. You're teaching love. Congratulations. All right? I joke with parents that from zero to 18 months, basically, we want to teach a child that the whole world revolves around you. And then we're going to spend the next 18 years unteaching that. All right? (laughs) All right. So as they hit the road, how do we show love to them? How do you show love to a toddler? Well, you can start by not locking them in their room and drinking Chardonnay out of a sippy cup at 10 a.m. But, you know, um, in the positive column, like what, what maybe could we do? Um, let's put it this way. What can a toddler do that an infant can't do? Pretty much everything, right? So, all, you know, eventually all of that bonding and oneness starts to get a little boring and a little spiff wants to get out and start looking at all the stuff he can do he can crawl around there's a whole cabinet full of pots and pans look at all those colorful cleaning products he can pull on the cat's tail your favorite words are no me and mine wit likes to go i did myself 
I did it myself. And they start entering this world that's about having a me and mastery. Remember that that we were talking about last night? They start walking vertically. Can you imagine what it would be like to have spent your entire life on your back and walk upright? I mean, there's a world behind me too. Like, how crazy is that? And they start using words and playing with toys and basically making your life more difficult because they have a will. But I want you to try this on. Let me see if this shows up up there. I took this video of Wit when he was little. See if it shows up on the um, screen, even though it's so bright. There. Look at him. He's on the kitchen floor, and he's pulling plastic utensils out of the thing, and boom, yeah. It's like Harry Potter. Like, he's never been able to do anything in his life, and all of a sudden, he's making all this noise and racket and pulling everything out of the box, all right? Um, point being, get a vibe for that. I want you to see what this is like for them. They've been an infant their whole life, and suddenly they can, like, work magic. I can make plastic knives and forks skitter across the floor, and then me and Papa have to clean them up so Mama doesn't get mad, okay? So, wonderful, but this whole will thing and these abilities and all that are going to make your life more complicated. Our research studies have shown us that relationships are always more difficult with two people in them. And so now we have the, the, immerse, the emergence of another individual. So how do we show love to a toddler? Well, we're going to continue to bond and nurture. You know, little toddlers still want to like crawl up in your lap and they want those snuggles and cuddles and all that. Um, we're still going to nurture and bond. We're still going to provide for their needs. Okay, but to show love to a toddler, we're going to add two new things. Number one, I want to have a category for mirroring and embracing and getting excited about and joining all their new little abilities. And number two, we're going to have a category for setting limits on all their new little abilities at the same time. You hear the love and limits again? This is John's theme song. So let's look at them. Number one, we celebrate, mirror, embrace, look for, get excited about the new them that is emerging. This is something in the image of God, okay? One of the reasons that the twos are called terrible is because all of a sudden we have a child who's starting to have a will and an opinion and, and, and their own way. For some reason, more and more I'm seeing this, we're seeing this in the threes, one of my therapist friends calls it the terrible threes. <laughs> now, the authoritarian types respond to this whole advent of independence as if toddlers are these little, you know, covenant breakers, you know, shaking their fist at God and parent, and that that self-centered little will needs to be brought under authority. And they are exactly one half correct, all right? But what we shouldn't miss here is that what's happening is the development of a person. I see doormats in therapy who never got to do this. And you ask, who are you, or what do you want, or what do you believe, or what do you stand for, or can you push back on your, your, your critical wife, and they don't have anything, all right? Remember, one of our seven is identity and strength. So this is where that starts in the toddler years. So having a self doesn't necessarily mean self-centered selfishness. 
We're talking here just about helping them get a seat at the table, to be a player, to have a voice, uniquely you in God's image. Remember that ye of Joshua from last night? So the toddler days is where this begins. So one of the things we can do to help that is look for the opportunities where it's legit and safe for you to affirm and engage those times for them to be big and independent. Look for those times where you can say the opposite of the runaway bunny. If you get up and run away from me, then I will stand up and cheer and go, you go, girl. Okay. Callie separated early. She's always been kind of independent. And I remember one time when we were in Los Angeles and she was a crawler. We went out to a park, laid out the, 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 the blanket and got, started getting out our picnic. And we looked up and Callie had crawled away like from me to the piano. She's headed toward downtown, okay? And, 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 and you could see every now and then she'd stop and turn around and look at us. And you couldn't hear her because of the ambient noise of the city, but she was just laughing with this joy and power of crawling away from us. And we're like, hope you make it in Hollywood. You know, it's like she, she was being so big. Now, of course, we went and got her, blah, blah, blah. But she, she, there, was just, there was this wonder in, in joining her in that excitement. Um, I remember one of ours loved to take the TV remote and change the channels. You know, and, and it's like she would change the channels and see the TV change. And she'd look at you like, like she just re-engaged the hyperdrive of the Millennium Falcon, you know. And we go, yay, you're Sheena Warrior Princess, Thundar the Powerful. You know, anyway, she now runs the human resources of a cellular company. It's like they're learning and trying this power. Look for the times in which you can enter their little world, okay? Now, as you can imagine, all of their antics cannot be responded to with such enthusiasm. Like, oh, you're drinking water out of the toilet. That's so organic, like composting, you know. Or you hit your brother so well, he'll be out for hours, you know. I'll have some, get some laundry folded, you know. Um, that's not going to help anybody with their, you know, development. Which is why we also are going to show love to a toddler here by limiting their independence and power too. In other words, we love you enough to not let you hurt yourself and us. So we, we, we you know, grab them when they run out in the street. We use strong nose. They have tantrums and we squat. We don't get angry or try to control, but we're not going to back down. I told you Whitlight's driving in my car with me. I have a neat little convertible. It's all beat up. I've kind of worked on it. And here's a great example of, of doing both these things with a toddler. He likes to sit in my lap and his hands on the wheel and steer. He's so big. And I keep my hands on the wheel too. I am letting him be big and strong and I am limiting his power at the same time. It's like a little parable of what we're doing at this age. All right? So we set limits on them in their power. And as much as possible, again, without the anger that we just talked about. Let's talk about anger a little bit more. If we're going to talk about putting love in their plus column, let's talk a minute about putting, keeping out love in the negative column, what I call love undoers. You want to talk about loving your kids, look for the ways and look for the, for the love undoers, the thing that suck love out. The Hall of Famers here being anger and shame and scoldiness and jerkiness and all that. I had a kid once uh, as a client whose father would scream at him and call him a stupid idiot if he lost a ball game. And he said, you know, 
It didn't bother him, and they deserved to be talked to like that for the way he had played. But he was super insecure, and he had trouble with friends, and, you know, it was, you know, fun for the whole family. Um, I want us to be aware of those things and be really taking responsibility for them and going, well, what is the deal with me and my anger? If you struggle with that kind of thing, like I did. Um, And obviously, none of us want to act that way, right? But we do, right? So let's return to our old friend. What do we do when we do act this way? What's our, what's our, our phrase? The only thing better than a perfect parent is a humble parent. Then when you lose your marbles and act like a jerk, swing back in, repair it. I had a client once who was like a big shot physician and was like, had real rage problems with his kids. And, and he tells me, he's like, I, I keep going off on my kids. Like, I'm losing it. I got to stop this. And I said, well, you know, basic principle in the universe is the only way to stop an out-of-control behavior, regardless of what it is, is A, for us to understand what's going on inside. Let's figure out what's driving this. But if that's all you do, you're just going to be a very insightful jerk. So number two, we need to set some literal tangible limits on you some cost for you in reality for when you act this way um so what are you willing to do and he goes what do you mean I said well when you are a jerk to your kids you need to pay them back I said how about you do their chores if you're a jerk to them you do their chores for a week and he said okay and so here is kids watching him out the window in the morning in his scrubs rolling the garbage to the street because he yelled at them the other day Repentance is everybody's love language. And you have this person who's taken responsibility and ownership for the ways in which they're acting jerky. Wow. Anyway, with toddlers, we put love in the plus column with two things. Let's say them another way. We delight in their strength and we limit their strength. We embrace the opportunity for them to begin saying no. We're going to also teach them to hear no at the same time. All right, school age. How do we love them here? Well, we're still going to bond, bond and nurture. You know, that eight-year-old in the sweet time before bed, they still want you to kind of rub their back. Um, we're still going to mirror and embrace. Look, Ma, no hands. Look at all your new abilities. Um, we're always going to be setting limits from now on. But two new concepts become important for school-age kids. Number one, during this season of their lives, They start having the first forays into life outside the family. Their first adventures in school, baseball, spend the night parties, teachers, coaches, whatever. And they're going to need help with that. They're entering the real world, not just the family world for the first time. And they're going to need a power source for that. And secondly, they really start tuning in at this age into how unideal and yucky life can be. In other words, kids always notice that life is yucky, but around school age, they really start to tune in and go, God, this stinks. Think about what your school age kid complains about. What do they complain about? This isn't fair. His piece is bigger. We've got too much homework. I hate our minivan. The neighbor's got a batten cage. You know, they're thingies in my soup. I mean, what do they do? They talk a lot about the yucky stuff in life or about themselves. I struck out at baseball. I'm no good. You hear that? 
they're really tuning in more to that. And they're going to need help with that pain and disappointment. Okay? So since these are their greatest needs, these are going to be the most powerful places that we can love them best. So they're going to need two things to address this. We're going to call them empowering them in those challenges and empathy and support and presence in the difficulty. And pardon the psychobabble terms, empathy and empowerment. Sounds like this week's Dr. Phil, you know. Empathy and empowerment this week on Dr. Phil. But notice the love and limits theme again. Empower and empathy. Again, same thing. So, let's look at them. Empowering. This is where we love them and teach them to be strong and to face challenges. Remember, as one, of our, one of our seven was being strong last night, identity and strength. This is it. We're going to teach this as we've taught everything. So they're facing life outside the family, and they're dealing with difficulty at a new level. And sometimes we will need to teach them, hey, man, I got news for you. You can do this. Let me show you. This is scary, but we can do this. As we, as we touched on this last night, here's a very important secret of the universe regarding children and pain and fear and difficulty, and it should be required reading at the academy. But it is this. Kids get their view of themselves and of the world through the eyes of their parents and their mentors and their inner circle, all right? They get their view of themselves and their view of the world from the eyes of their parents. So at this age, with school-age kids, they so much need our eyes looking back with them without our own anxiety and saying, you are strong. You can, you can learn to do this. I have confidence in that. They need to see that in our eyes. That speaks love to them in a strong way. As we said last night, you will get opportunities to do this. Those situations where you are trying to reassure them and comfort them and they won't get comforted. You know, it's like, um, like I said, you know, they'll start coming up with problems you can't fix, like weather or you're going to die or I'm not going to be able to go to sleep or there's a bully at school. I mean, you can't fix the bully at school. You know, what are you going to do? Go drive up to the playground in your Lexus and go, come on, Buck, let's go, you and me. You know, you can't do that. Somehow you've got to empower them to do that. You know, and around school age, this gets more difficult. For instance, if, 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 if a five-year-old says, I'm afraid a tornado's going to hit the house, you can say, oh, baby, tornado's not going to hit the house. And she'll go, okay. But a nine-year-old says, I'm afraid a tornado's going to hit the house. And you say, tornado's not going to hit the house. He's going to say, well, I just saw Jim Cantori on the Weather Channel standing in front of a house that had gotten flattened by a tornado. And then, what, you know, all of a sudden, your reassurances aren't going to work anymore, right? So you can't fix some of these fears and vulnerabilities and difficulties, but you can help strengthen your child and help them find their ability to fix it. So we need to be really careful about being sort of rescue rangers there and trying to fix them or bail them out or make it all better because what are our eyes saying at that point? If we treat them like they need to be fixed all the time, we're saying, oh, you're little and you're fragile and you need your mommy to buy you a special weather radio. Is that love? 
Is that what message we want to be sending? So I want to be really careful about that. I was talking to a mom once who was telling me about an interaction she had with a school counselor trying to decide whether to hold her child back. And she said, I just told that counselor, I just want to make sure she doesn't struggle in any way. And I'm like, wow, what kind of message is that sending to your child? I see so many kids who've been helped so much or protected so much that they have no idea that they are strong. It's kind of like if you could protect your children from all bacteria or viruses, they would never develop an immune system. You know, and doctors are even condemning some of the, the habitual use of the antibacterial goos because what they started seeing was that children's immune system development was actually getting compromised. Doctors were saying, you know, they need to go out and eat dirt. You know, they need to eat that gum from under the table at Applebee's. You know, they need to build up some immunities here, you know. <laughs> so same with their hearts. Sometimes our eyes need to be saying, you know what, it is a big bad world. And guess what? You, me, us, we can handle it, okay? I was guilty of this too myself. Um, one time Bonnie, um, during the golden years, she had the hardest English teacher at, at Jackson Prep. And she had this paper due, and, and for all of Bonnie's charms, she was a terrible writer. And I look at this, she asked me to help on this paper, because I'm an English major, all right? And she asked for help on this paper. And I look at it, and this paper is what we call a dog rug. I wouldn't let my dog sleep on this paper, all right? So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to help you with this paper. And so after many tears, you know, hers and mine, it's late at night. And finally, I said this. I said, just go to bed, okay? I'm going to write your paper. I did it. True confession time. I said, go to bed. I've read this book. I've studied this book. I will write your paper. Go. So I wrote her paper. And she turns it in the next day. And about four days later, she comes in from school and she goes, Dad, I got your paper back. He gave you a C. And I said, a C? I've never made a C in English in my life. Give me the phone. Where's, I'm going to call that guy, you know. And the worst part of it was Norma was mad at me because Bonnie needed a good grade. What? You know? So, rescuing, biohazard, all right? Now, blind spots again. We're building strength here. If your kid is the head of the fourth grade Yakuza clan at his school, he doesn't need more empowerment, right? We can move on to back to the limit-setting talk, all right? Now, secondly... Empathy, dealing with loss, dealing with pain, dealing with fear. This stuff is hard. Life is not fair. Life is difficult. How do we care for them there? Let me give you a model for it. Those of you who are at the marriage conference remember this model, how we respond to people's pain, but it's great for dealing with kids. Three places we can be regarding other people's pain. We can blow it off, we can fix, or we can learn what it means to be with. So blow off, obviously. This is when our kid encounters some pain and our response is basically to minimize it, shut it off. Come on, you can't cry about everything. Get a grip, it's not that bad. You know, starving kids in Africa kind of stuff, right? In other words, we try to talk them out of their painful feelings. Um, the problem here is that blow-off kind of denies the fact that there's actually pain in the world, all right? I mean, our kids are going to face pain sometime, right? 
wouldn't it be great if the first time they faced it, they could face it with us? All right, so number one, be real careful about minimizing pain. Get in there with them. The other extreme, fix. This is kind of the southern specialty. You know, this is where we swoop in there like that good southern mama and daddy, and we're going to make it all better, baby, my little angel. You know, so, you know, they, they forget their homework, and we fix it for them, or we're off to Walmart at 9.30 buying styrofoam planets and poster board for that science project, or, or uh, their, their friends have a spend-the-night party, and they aren't invited, so what do we do? We're like, well, we're just going to take you to Atlanta, honey, go to Falcons game in that Coke museum. We'll show those kids what fun is, you know, and we're swooping in there and rescuing them from everything, right? Don't we do this stuff? So anyway, fix doesn't blow them off, but fix prevents them from ever having to engage the yuck and face it. Somebody's always swooped in and made it better, so they don't have the calluses to deal with life. Catchphrase here being, some parents don't prepare their children for the road, they try to prepare the road for their children, all right? Which gives temporary relief to you and your child, but basically handicaps them ultimately about dealing with real, real life. And besides, it, 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 it misses the opportunity of the intimacy of struggling and suffering together. This is a talk on love, remember? I mean, what bonds us together more than the opportunity to hurt together, to struggle together, going through difficulty together? So fixing it, you miss that. Which brings us to door number three. Third option, with. Um, I know that we would all do anything to be able to protect our children from hurting and suffering. This is the hardest part about being a parent. I, couldn't, I can't help you there. I couldn't help myself. But what would you pay, what would you give me if I told you I could give you something that can't protect your children from suffering, but could heal your children's suffering? That'd be worth something. If you learn what it means to be lovingly with your children in their pain or their fear, if you learn what it means to walk with them and be connected with them in their pain and in their fear, it will not protect them from pain, but it will help develop in them the ability to metabolize it and to heal it. Okay, this is gold. With means coming alongside of. With means being with somebody present. As we said, pain itself does not hurt children. Unresolved pain hurts children. So what is unresolved pain? Pain that I'm alone in. Pain that, that, that I'm by myself. With is what makes pain resolve. With says, I'm, I know that you're hurting and I care. I can't fix it. Nothing worse than forgetting your lines in the play. Can't fix that. But you know what? <laughs> I remember that feeling. We will walk it with you. I remember um, this girlfriend breaking up with me in high school, and I was all heartbroken. And I remember sitting back on the my bed in my room and I was crying and my mom was sitting next to me and she was just rubbing my back and my dad was standing there in front of us and he was there too 
And they were just with me. And I remember how comforting that felt to me. I did hear my mom say to my dad, whisper, she said, I wish I could just turn that little girl across my knee. Go mom. When Callie got diagnosed with diabetes when she was 13, of course that was horrible. But I'll never forget one moment after the, the real fear was over and we had been learning how to do insulin and give shots and all that. And, and I think we were actually getting ready to leave the hospital. And um, Callie was sitting in the bed and Norm and I were sitting on either side of the bed. And the three of us were just sitting there in the room together alone. And um, I remember, I don't know how it started, but we said, you know, we don't really know what all this means. But no matter what happens, we will always walk it with you. The three of us will always walk it together, whatever that means. And um, (laughs) she's 33 now, and we're still doing that. You want to help your kids make sense of pain, unfortunately, life is going to give you opportunities like that. And there's nothing more loving and powerful and empowering and strength-giving and life-building to your children than to be able to engage their pain with them like that. Bottom line, the goal is not to protect our children from suffering. That's impossible. The goal is to teach them to learn to suffer well in the context of love. That's God talking. That's what he says. Now, blind spots, all this empathy and love and tears and all that, that's really sweet. But what if you have that histrionic child, Desdemona, where everything that happens is the end of the world. One of mine, I've always carried handkerchiefs. One of mine, I was disciplined in her once, and there was a handkerchief lying in her body. She was so upset, and she goes, Daddy, could I use your bandana to wipe my tears? Like, yeah, knock yourself out, Slick. You're still going to time out. You know, it's like, what do you do with that? You know, more you could do more empathy on her all day long, and it's just going to be a big, you know, emotion fest. So with them, we swing back. It's a blind spot. We're going to push more empowerment. I understand it's hard. We love you. It's difficult, but you can handle this, okay? All right, teenagers. And let's wrap this up. Showing love to teenagers is where it gets the most complicated. You ever heard that old analogy where it says little kids are like dogs and teenagers are like cats? So you come home from work and your eight-year-old little boy dog comes running up, jump on you, wants to know about your day, and you're the greatest thing in the whole world and wants to lick all over you and pick you up, and you pick him up. And, and all of a sudden one day your bouncy little puppy dog child turns into a big surly cat. And now you walk into the room and they kind of look at you like, who died and made you emperor? You know, and, and you, you put food in front of them and they kind of push it away and disappear up to their room. And 30 minutes later, the Domino's guy is on the, you know, knocking on the door. It's like, what happened to my little puppy dog? It's this nasty cat now, right? So how do we, here, here's, the, here's the real question. How, how in the world do you show love to a child whose job it is to get away from you? <laughs> Okay, 
Well, like, like so far, they need all the other stages. They still need nurture and bonding. Ours wouldn't talk to us for a week and then all of a sudden plop down on the bed at 11.30 during the best part of the movie and want to talk. And I'm like, I thought you hated us. You know, I'm confused here. Um, they, they, they still obviously need empowerment and limits and empathy, very much the limits and all that. Um, but they're going to need another, another, another piece here. The secret here with teenagers and understanding loving them is remember our three stages of parenting, attending, parenting, and de-parenting. Well, with teenagers, we have entered into the de-parenting stage. And the key to understanding how you show love to a teenager beyond the other, um, the other areas, the other love things, I can't think of the word, um, is to understand the role of de-parenting with them okay in other words you're 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 they're still your kids but your job here and their job is for them to be able to leave you very soon so we got to be thinking about helping de-parent them there and that's going to be the key to what it looks like to love a teenager well let's talk about a couple of ways we love teenagers by de-parenting Number one, learn what it means to talk with a teenager, not just talk to them. Actually, one of my clients told me this. He's like, I like talking to you, man. You talk with me, not just to me. And I'm like, dude, I'm stealing that, you know? What does it mean to talk with? Let me explain it like this. It has to do with understanding authority. Think about it like this. One thing you got to be able to do in the universe is to be able to be over other people in authority, right? You are over your little children. I am over you right now. I am in authority. You would not like it if I sat up here and went, I don't know, really, what do y'all think? You know, I'm over in authority. Um, you're in authority at your work, okay? And secondly, we have to have the ability to be under other people in authority. We have to have the ability to bend the knee. We talked about submitting. When the cop pulls you over, you pull over. When the boss says, come in, you come in. When Les says, stop at noon, I'll stop at noon. Now, here's the key. And the piece we often miss with teenagers, we also have, need to have the ability to be neither. Okay? Just peers. In other words, right now I am over you in authority, but wouldn't it be weird if I stayed here? And we're walking out in the parking lot, and I say, I noticed the way that you parked. I have three points on that. You may take notes. I mean, that'd be weird. Once we leave here, I step out of my role as authority, and I'm like, what's the best barbecue in, in Oxford? What do y'all think? And we're just dudes, okay? So here's the secret for teens. When we're parenting littles, we parent them from the over position only. You can't put the cat in the bathtub. Not a lot of, you know, ambiguity there. But here's the secret. With teenagers, we parent from the over and the neither position at the same time. All right? In other words... We show love, one of the most powerful ways we show love to a teenager is by while we're still in authority, 
treating them as people who respect and we're interested in hearing what they say and let that matter. One of the biggest mistakes I see parents of teenagers making is trying to continue to parent their teenager from the above only position only, okay? You know, that's what we say and that's final, okay? You do that and you're dog meat, all right? That kid's going to go compliant, rebel, or sneak, lickety-split, and it's all over, okay? So yes, we need to show... We need to set limits on teenagers, yeah, but to love them well, look for the opportunities to add the human-to-human element, to talk with, not just talk to. What does that sound like? Your teen says, I hate school, okay? The over and authoritarian parent's going to go, well, then I hope you like being a garbage man because that's what you're going to be one day if you don't buckle down, right? Talking with says... Really? Man, I did too. In fact, I almost flunked chemistry, and I still have bad dreams about it. Like, I can have, I, 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 school is really, really hard. You're right. What is it you don't like about it? Anything you do like about it? What is it you hate? Talk to me. I'm talking with. Now, don't panic. It's both, remember? I'm also going to add, and by the way, if you flunk that test this weekend, you're not going to the game. I'm not abdicating authority. I'm just adding the with part, okay? Let's do another one. They say, I've, I've gotten into rap music. And you're going to go, the authoritarian, anxious, over-parent's going to go, oh, my gosh, with all those filthy lyrics, I want to wash that little Wayne's mouth out with soap, you know? You do that, he's going to come back tomorrow with a flat bill and gold chains and his pants down around his hips and, you know, Okay? I want you to say, really, rap music, I don't know a lot about that. Who's the best rapper? Make me a CD. Can you make your whole car go like that? And, by the way, if you get into some lyrics that are too nasty, we'll probably need to set some limits on all this. You know, we can start listening to, to Lecrae, you know. Um, so we're not, we're, not, we're not either or, and we're adding this with element. You do that, and your kid's going to be wanting to borrow your Miles Davis next week, all right? Teenagers who aren't motivated, as I mentioned last night. I want to pull him aside, outside of the fray, and kind of go, dude, what's school like for you? It seems like, like you hate it. You kind of just want to play video games. And I want him to go, yeah, I do. I just like video games. I go, cool. What do you like about them? Don't jump to the, well, you can't do that all your rest of your life, son. Talk with. I was speaking to a group once in this, well, let me put it this way. A, 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 lot, of the, a, lot, of, a lot of times teenage parents will ask me, why won't my, my teenager talk to me? Usually it's because you're wanting to talk to them, not talk with them, and they know it. I had a mom raise her hand in a group once, and she, I said, yeah, and she said, why won't my, my teenage son talk to me? Like I knew him or something. I don't, you know. Um, and for some reason, I said to her, "Well, what would you like to talk to him about?" And she said, "I don't know. To find out what he's doing to make sure he's not getting into trouble." And I'm like, "Well, I can't imagine why he wouldn't want to talk to you. You know, I wouldn't want to talk to you." All right, your teen will listen to you in obedience to about the same degree that you listen to them regarding their hearts so again we have a love and limits dance going here i'm still going to set limits on them but i want to be in a loving place where i at least want to hear their hearts all right i'm going to rush through this next part because i want to have more time for questions secondly we're going to love their 
uh, love language, loving their deep parenting by looking for the opportunities for them to separate that we can embrace and embracing them, much like we did with the teenager, I mean with the toddler, okay? In other words, teenagers are all about separating. They're all about pulling away from you. A lot of parents freak out. Oh, my gosh, he doesn't want to be with us anymore. He just wants to be with his friends. This is their job. They're working to become adults apart from you. Like with the friends thing, think about it. We are each other's inner circle now, right? We're friends. Friends are where I go now. That's what adulthood's like. Wouldn't y'all think it was weird if I said, y'all, I'm 60 years old, but y'all, my mom is my best friend. It's so sweet, y'all. We go on trips together, and I call her five times a day. You'd be going like, yeah, we, we've read Tennessee Williams, Dr. Cox, but, you know, we move into friendships, right? And parents freak out over that. One of the ways we show real love to a teenager is looking for their areas, opportunities that they can separate and embrace them. Um, you know, they want to paint their room. Yeah, they want to stud in the ear. Great. They want to go to that game with their friends. Try to stretch. Look for these. All right? Now, there are three big fat reasons I'm telling you that. Number one, it feels incredibly loving to them. You are sort of saying, I am for you in your movement toward adulthood. You know how teenagers will slide over to the grown-up table after Thanksgiving? It's kind of like they want to be in the big group now, and you welcome them. God, that feels good to them. Reason number two, consider the alternative of not embracing their separateness. The alternative being your 38-year-old son lying on the couch in the bonus room saying, Hey, Mom, we got any more Hot Pockets? Okay, this is your future. Number three, we do this because... They can make this harder if they need to. In other words, the separation thing, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. One of the ways I tell parents about it is having a teenager is a little like being carjacked. You're sitting in your car and some guy taps on the window with a pistol. Now he can take your wallet. He can take you, your wallet, and your car. He can kill you and take your car and your wallet. And if all he wants is your wallet, give it to him. You're the luckiest person in Oxford, all right? It's the people who try to fight the hijacker who get killed by trying to not give anything. Your teenager will separate, hopefully. How bad that is has a lot to do with how much you're willing to work with them. Mine would want to call me John sometimes or Papa Shrink. I'm like, you know what? If that's all you need to be separate and sassy, where do I sign? I want to lock in at that rate, man, okay? It's the parents who say, no, that's disrespectful. You'll call me father. Those are the ones who have the kids who shave their heads, okay? They can take this as far as you want. It's a, hard, it's a carjacking, all right? So look for the opportunities of separateness. You can embrace and embrace them, all right? So bottom line of every age is... Parenting is a relationship, not a task, all right? I always tell people that therapy is literally, simply just a systemic, strategic form of relationship. That's what parenting is too, okay? I've just wanted you to be strategic about it. I've wanted to teach you a grid for that. Um, in closing, one last story. Uh, my oldest daughter, Callie, the one born in California, she is a therapist in Nashville, and one uh, weekend, a couple of years ago, I was doing a conference in um, 
North Carolina, and she was doing a conference at Camp DeSoto on the same weekend. So after the conference, I called her and I said, well, my conference went okay. How'd your conference go? It was cute. And she said, it was good, but it was to a bunch of moms of teenage girls. But she said, oh my gosh, teenage girl moms are so anxious. And finally, I just snapped. They have so much anxiety. I said to them, look, my dad is a parenting expert. And right now, as we speak, he is in North Carolina doing one of his many parenting conferences. He's a pro on it, and he's writing a book about it. And you know what? I still needed therapy, so get over it. <laughs> like, there you go. All right, let's do questions. I've got a, a quick one while we're getting somebody else right, uh, to get their question. But what, if anything, does the research and the scholarship say about birth order and any particular characteristics you can expect out of the oldest, middle, youngest child? You know, I, I could sort of um, um, shuck and jive you an answer to that. Like, you know, the essay question you don't know the answer to in, in, in high school. But I don't think I want to. Um, I don't know a lot about that. I'm not an expert on that. Does anybody else know something about it? Can help me out? Body of Christ? You guys know something? I should know more about that. Uh, so we have, we have five ranging from four to 18. So our 18-year-old is recently moved out of the house how do we find limits that I still pay for a ton of her stuff, yet give her the ability to be an adult and make stupid decisions um, and fail? Um, how stupid are her decisions? Not as stupid as mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but things that she knows better of, yet still choosing to do them. Like what? Can you share an example? If you, if you can't, that's fine. Um, not working. Not, not showing up for work. Oh. Interesting. So you see some irresponsibility issues. Is she in school? Yes. How are her grades? Not good. Okay. But she's been a, she was a really good student until 18. Okay. Um, how's her party life? Um... I don't know. I mean, recreationally, is she misbehaving? Somewhat. Okay. Um, <clears throat> she doesn't that's live a, at home. Pardon me? She doesn't live at home. Right, yet. yeah. She so, lives at school? Uh, in an, she has an apartment, but in her town. Right. Your question is a very good one, because it puts a finger on a very important issue. And that is... Um, when a child is not a child, but a young adult, and they actually have a lot of freedom to make choices, and they're right on the cusp of real adulthood, um, what does it look like to set limits on them? 
Obviously, you don't have control over them like you did maybe when they were in high school and certainly when they were smaller to actually say, you get upstairs right now and study young lady or there'll be no TV, right? Um, but you see kids go off to college and start making all these boneheaded decisions. One of the ways that I talk to parents about that is to frame it thusly. You know what? Um, you have the freedom and the opportunity now to make lots of choices that are pretty unwise and potentially destructive. And we can't run around behind you sort of nitpicking exactly what your choices are. And we can't control a lot of the things that you're doing. Um, but we really are uncomfortable bankrolling such a lifestyle. In other words, to the degree that your grades are X, Y, and Z, um, we are going to limit how much money we give you. Or if your grades continue to be X, Y, Z, uh, as we say in Jackson, C at Heinz, you know, um, you're coming home, you're going to go to school here. Um, to the degree that you have a job and that job's supposed to give you money and you lose that job, I'm not supplementing that money. In other words, from a distance, we can say, I can't control you, but you are looking at me in a sense to bankroll this lifestyle, and we're not willing to do that. So Lauren says that I, I, I'm a pushover when it comes to that, like taking care of our children. So how do I do that when I know that she is going to be suffering if, if that's a choice that I, I make? How do you pull the trigger of a consequence that will make her suffer tomorrow and next week, knowing that? Yes. Um, by getting your wife to needlepoint on a little plaque for you that the two options in life are suffering and bad suffering. In other words, the reason I gave you that thing this morning of like discipline is safe suffering is because what we are doing is, since the world is such a dangerous place, discipline and consequences are creating an opportunity to have a contained version of suffering before you get to the uncontained version of suffering. So it's like the thing to tell yourself is, huh, here's what you should need a point, and it's shorter. Consider the alternative. <laughs> In other words, um, it, it, she can suffer X amount now or X plus infinity amount later. And basic principle of the universe, a small known finite amount of pain now is infinitely preferable to an unknown amount of pain in the future. So this is spare the rod, hates his child kind of thing. If you can manage your own guilt, sadness, sorrow, whatever it is, and you can talk to your safe people or somebody close to you, to unpack, like, what is it about that that's making my own pain about her pain so strong that I'm not willing to let her actually face reality and have to grow? What's keeping me from doing that? That would be your, your personal question. But the answer to your question is that um, a, a small amount of pain now is better than the alternative. Because if she continues to live this way, the consequences just get bigger. And I would say that to all of you who have children who are relatively small and have any compunction against really coming down with hard consequences is that the consequences in real life do just get worse and worse. So we give them this great mercy of safe suffering early. But I'm thinking that's what to do. And it's a general good principle with, with uh, college students is to have that mentality of to what degree am I bankrolling this. 
So um, I have a couple who I'm seeing, and their son has started really getting into pot. And he's like, man, no, it's just a new beer. And they're like, well, we're just really uncomfortable with it. But he says he's going to do it anyway. And I said, well, you know, I don't know where you want to land about pot, but you obviously are very uncomfortable with it. And he is obviously doesn't care that you're uncomfortable with it. So you are completely within your bounds to say, you know, that's cool, man. Cheech and Chong it out of town. Go for it. <laughs> but we're uncomfortable. Bankroll it. I'm essentially buying your pot, okay? This thing I don't. Okay, so, so the bankroll piece is a good model for me. Here's just Thank another you. example that came to mind. One, one, um, one time, one of mine was home from college, and it was storm of the century outside. I mean, like limbs were falling and everything. And she said, I'm going to Kelsey's. And I said, no, 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 no. It's like, you know, there's like sirens going off. You can't leave the house. And she looks at me and says, you can't tell me what to do. I'm in college. All right. Remember the feeling, the are you on pills feeling? You feel it? You want to throw down? Oh, yes, I can, young lady. You feel it? That'll kill you. You fall under the dark side there. And, and, and you will start to bow up and you'll be in a power struggle before you know it. And remember what happens in a power struggle? You will lose, okay? Remember, I love going observational in marriages or with parenting. I stopped myself for a second and I said to her, so what you're telling me is that since you're in college, I can no longer speak into your life in any way? And she said, no, I guess not. I guess I'm not saying that. Okay, I won't go. Now, just backing up and not biting, she threw that raw meat out there, and I'm like, uh-uh, there's a hook in that. Just a throwaway example. Being aware of that power struggle and how it can catch you. If you can, if you can, if you can avoid that bait, you got them, all right? Not really to your question, but it reminded me. Another question? Yes, Les. we got some questions online here that right. are dealing with um, raising um, kids with uh, grandparents that are maybe a little over-involved. That um, are what? Over-involved. Okay. Uh, this, this one's a little long, but um, my husband and I uh, have really bought into the, quote, good enough parenting model and have really appreciated what your book teaches about the freedom we have in this. Thank you. Thank you. As we parent our young children, we have both become, even more so, aware of the wounds of hurt our parents have left. Uh, when conflict has brought some of these old wounds to light, we've been met with, quote, why does your generation just want to blame their parents for things? We just did the best we could, unquote. Uh, we aren't looking for them to rewrite history. It's clear that there's a shame and either an inability to, or unwillingness to see our wounds and acknowledge the role they played in our wounding. So the question is, how do we move towards our parents with the messaging of, quote, it's okay to be good enough, we didn't need perfect, and then, and we don't need it now. Parallel question to that is someone who's asking about, uh, what do we do when my wife and I are trying to discipline our grand, uh, discipline, but grandparent says, oh, it's okay, you're so sweet, or we say no to candy and grandmother shows up with a sack full of M&Ms. <laughs> um, okay, so the first question kind of, I mean, you, you stay with me because I want to make sure I got it right. The first question almost doesn't feel like a parenting question in the sense it's more about, okay, um, as we have grown in our adulthood, we have become more aware of the injuries that we carry from our own parents. And we have attempted to talk to those parents about it, but those parents have pushed back in a defensive way. And so the question is what? 
you still continue to care about them? Um, and and um, how does she put it? Put it on, on the recording. Well, what she says is, is how do we move towards our parents with the messaging of, look, it's okay to be good enough, we didn't need perfect, and we don't need it now. But there's a failure to even validate them in the midst of their disappointment with the way they raised them. Okay. All right, so part of what this walks into is um, a question of forgiveness and reconciliation, too. Um, in other words, what do you do with an injury from an unrepentant person? That's what we're talking about here, is we have people who have hurt me, and they don't care, and they're going to be defensive, and they're unrepentant. What's my job at that point? Well, I have a second marriage conference that we ought to do sometime in which we do a whole talk on forgiveness. It's on the podcast. You can listen to it yourself. Um, but are, are we called upon to forgive people who are unrepentant and don't care I think it gets kind of sketchy there as R.C. Sproul said to us in seminary once even God doesn't forgive unrepentant sinners so are we supposed to forgive unrepentant people I don't know but it's certainly sketchier than someone who's repentant with an unrepentant person you have to take other things into account one of which is how am I going to relate to you now now, I might not live in a self-righteous position of, well, I will deign to be with you even though you're unrepentant, but I don't want to be close to you and play the victim. I don't want to do that. But I do want to say, okay, here are people who were hurtful historically as I was a child and obviously have changed not one bit. They're still the same jerky people they were then. Only trick, though, now is I'm an adult too. So instead of trying to go and repair the history or fix the problem, or get them to own it, what I want to do is set limits now. In other words, if that parent says to me, oh, I cannot believe you would say something like that to me, I would say, huh, tell me what it is about it you can't believe. In other words, I would alpha them. Or if they say, I've done all this for you, and this is how you've responded. I'd say, you know, Mom, I don't think I really do the whole guilt thing anymore. You're welcome to do it, but I kind of don't really have ears to hear it. Well, I just, I guess we should never talk again. Well, that would be a real sad choice for you to make. Do you hear how I'm being an alpha with her? I'm setting limits in a powerful way with her. Another talk on the podcast in the um, marriage conference number two called difficult people, dealing with difficult people, and dealing with people when they're difficult. It's like the question I've had for my entire practice is, how do you live in a loving, Christ-like way with jerks? Within the Christian community, we think, well, you should turn the other cheek. You should try to live out Christ to them. And, it, and there's all this nicey-nicey junk for these perps who are walking around like gunning people down with Uzis. But what I found in my practice is learning to powerfully alpha a jerky, taking, entitled, predatory person is actually living out Christ to them. When I can restrain the way in which you're talking hurtfully to me, it actually protects me and it requires you to grow. So in response to a person who you have a history with of them treating you unkindly and they won't be repentant now... I want to start living with them in such a way as to set some loving limits on the way they treat me now. 
So at least the hurt stops. Now, what will happen a lot of times is that somebody who is so weak that they have to act like that are also so weak that once you alpha them, they will actually change and grow. And I've seen a lot of people have very good reconciled relationships with their hurtful parents as adults later on once they've alphaed them. In other words, I'm not going to interact with you or engage you when you talk to me like that parent. And I see older parent after older parent drop their weapons and sort of um, acquiesce. And I see the relationship get healed, not by forgiveness, but by power. That's a whole other talk. What does it sound like to set those kind of limits? It sounds like somebody walking in going, um, what do you think of inviting them to the party? What goobs say is, well, I thought y'all were like friends from work. And they wonder why they live being mistreated. What I want you to say is, whoa, I'm not sure if that's a question or an attack. Which one do you think it is? In other words, what does it sound like to start holding a jerky person accountable? Now, I'm not saying, I can't believe I'm not attacking them, and I'm not going one down victim. I'm staying nose to nose with them and going like, wow, if that's a question, I'm willing to answer it. If it's a criticism, then I don't have conversations that begin like that. You do that, and the, and the jerky predators in your life will have to grow. It's cool. Now, was there a question beyond that, their question about parenting? Okay. No, so it's more, about, it's more is, about what do you ha- what do you do when you have an older parent who's intervening in your parenting? You have a grandparent who is intervening. All right. Now, part of that question has to part of the answer to that question has to do with your relationship with your parent, the grandparent. In other words, like the first story, what we have here is a situation in which mom is saying, "I don't respect you or your." authority or your role as the parent here enough to honor it and you say no candy and I'm going to step over you and bring them M&Ms. One question I would have for you as your therapist if you told me that is tell me what it would feel like for you to have a confrontation with your mom where you said I'm really not willing to let you undermine my parenting and I guarantee that person would go oh god I could never do that. Why? Oh, she would never speak to me again. And it would start to touch all of her own childhood junk. So one question I would ask is, what would it be like for you to, going back to what I was just saying, set good limits on your parent? In other words, this parent is basically saying, I'm still going to run you, but they've forgotten that you're an adult. And you can say, you know what, Mom? If you're going to undermine my discipline, I think we're going to take a break from seeing Grandma for a while. Now, another issue about grandparents, so that's one issue, is you as an adult engaging your adult parents. That's a cool thing, all right? A very important thing is for you to no longer feel like you live in a child position with your parents. If you can't get out of that, then talk to some growth people and work on that. Another issue about grandparents, though, is that one of the the analogy I use in the book is people always talk about, you know, we have grandparents who are kind of mean to our children, or we have grandparents who treat our children in unkind ways. Or we have grandparents who um, are overly, um, you know, indulgent to our children. You know, every time they go over there, they come back with tons of toys and all this kind of stuff. You know, what's this going to do to our children? <clears throat> the analogy in the book is this. Um, the, don't 
don't overestimate the power of a grandparent. Okay? Essentially, a grandparent has the same amount of power in the life of your child as a hotel does in your life. In other words, sometimes we stay at a ritzy, you know, the Four Seasons, the St. Regis, and you get like push, plush bathrobes and cushy slippers, and it's fantastic. But then what happens? You go home. Okay? It's just a hotel. And sometimes you stay in a hotel, like I did, I stayed in a hotel in Sarvis off the highway once. And it had one of the, the air conditioner that had the fan was broken. And every time it'd come on, it'd go ding, 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 all night long. So that was terrible. But you know what? I got to go home. In other words, where your children will get their firmest, most grounded foundation is at home. And your grand, the, the grandparents are going to have an effect in their life, but the core grounding of your children's character is going to come out of their relationship with you. So push comes to shove. I want you to engage in the grandparents and speaking to them, but don't like be afraid that the grandparents are going to be able to undo the good parenting because you are the home, all right? We have a lot of kids. I have a lot of questions. Sorry. Um, so how do you handle a child that's, you know, you've raised them in church, you disciple them, you teach them, but then when they get a teenager, they're, you know, I don't believe in God. This is just a fairy tale. Then when you're trying to do, um, you know, go to church or do family worship, um, things, anything spiritual, they're just arguing with you the whole time, um, just saying, I don't believe this, this is dumb. You know, um, it just says really hurtful things. Um, and it's really heartbreaking when you've, you know, you've, you're trying to invest. How old is this kid? Uh, 14. Boy or girl? A girl. Um. What's she like regarding um, other issues, discipline issues, obedience issues, argumentative issues? Um, she is very, she, she was diagnosed with um, oppositional defiance disorder. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, all right, a couple of thoughts on that. So this isn't limited to the spiritual realm. Right. That just happens to be one of the fields of play. Yes, and I can say in times of hardship and suffering, she'll say, I read my Bible today. Um, but she did that on her own, not us telling her to. <clears throat> All right. Remember what teenagers are up to. Separating. I'm not you. Whatever you are, I'm not you. Okay? Um, I'm different from you. And a lot of times, especially if there's like the sort of emotional dynamics that would create a diagnosis like oppositional defiant, there's some anger there, okay? So she's going to pick a way to be different from you that would hurt you the most, okay? Now, one of the things that I would do with her is like take a serious course in talking with. In other words, the trick with her is, mm, let me put it this way. There's an aspect of her um, re religious spiritual discussion that has a power struggle element in it. Do you feel it? Mm -hmm. Can you smell it? Can y'all smell it? 
I don't like God anymore. I don't believe in Christianity. Do you feel the challenge? What you gonna do about it? Well, it's you feel because it? our rules like we don't want you to listen to that type of music. We don't want you to dress that way. We we don't want you dating right now. We don't feel like so. It's like our core beliefs because of the word and what we see outlined in scripture. She's mad at all that because that's where our, our right, rules yeah. are coming. From. Does she have ever give you an opportunity to talk with? Yes. Good. All right. I'm going to jump on those. If she says, I don't believe in all this God stuff, it's a myth. What I want you to say is, well, tell me more how you came to that. Like, what'd you, what'd you read? What'd you, what are you learning? I mean, I think the whole notion of us worshiping a being who none of us have ever seen, um, that, that, I mean, if you, if you step back and look at it, you could kind of go, wow, could it, could it possibly not be true? I have my doubts sometimes myself. How did you come to your doubts? Huh. Well, I totally get that. And oh, all the problems, you know, all the contradictions in Scripture. and blah, I go, yeah, the Bible is really confusing sometimes. It really is, isn't it? In other words, I would join her with her. And it's kind of like, you know, boxing is this. Judo is I'm going to take your momentum and throw you against the wall. And I want to use her momentum, in essence, to say, yeah, let's talk about how hard all this stuff is. Now, that's going to undo the power struggle. It also is an opportunity to connect with her because she's so angry. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt that says, if you're listened to and if you're heard, could that possibly soothe your heart any? Okay? Because a lot of kids who live in a power struggle and live in that much opposition are opposing something. And I want to sort of take away that opposing and say, I'm willing to hear you. Even if it's about the coarse things I believe, you matter enough to me to where I want to hear it. Now, I would still maintain limits. I totally get it that you don't believe Christianity and all this anymore. And you know that saddens my heart, but I, I'm grateful for you telling me about your thinking on it. I think it's cool that you're thinking on it. A lot of people don't think at all. You still do need to go to church with us. And, uh, and, and if, you, if, you, if you don't go to church or if you're snarky and unkind about that, know that you're going to be grounded that afternoon. But that's, that's up to you. You know, I don't have a dog in that fight. Um, but you do need to still go to church with us, you know, and, and when you're self-supporting and when you're on your own, not within our purview, and when we're no longer bankrolling your lifestyle, man, you can never go to church again if you don't want to, babe. But if you live here, you kind of need to do it. But that's the limit part, the love part. But I so get it that you have these doubts and concerns. You hear how I'm reproaching her? All right. Now, we could have another question. We're out of time. We'll stop as soon as you want. All right, we're going to do one more question. We could go further in dealing with what happens with her general opposition, her jerky behavior in general, sort of the limit-setting process of a teenager. But that's, that's, that'll get you started. Last one. Hey, John. Thanks for what you shared so far. You're um, welcome. Yeah, just we've got a tween, 11-year-old uh, girl that uh, I was just curious. She loves to be an individual and express individualism and kind of, I'm unique. I'm, uh, you know, different than everybody. Um, and so any, any thoughts on how you, any on ramps as you try to usher that usher her into the teenager stage, um, just any quick, maybe just, you know, on ramps of how do we encourage that? But at the same time, it's kind of a defiance thing. It's like, you want this and I'm going to do that. You know, like there's a, there's a desire to be separate and different. Um, and it, it's kind of always been there, but I was just curious, is there anything about, um, 
yeah, just encouraging, not not discouraging. You're an individual, but at the same time, you know, setting limits, setting appropriate things. So, it's what silly, kind of silly illustration would be like? Okay, um, you know, you, she comes downstairs. We see, oh, you've cut your socks because for some reason, and you know, we just cut them, and and so we start to talk about that. And cut like, your socks? Yeah, cut them. Just cut them. You okay. know, and so it's like, all right, that's that's different. Um, but it's like you're always stealing your mom's socks, and yet you're cutting your own. And so anyway. Um, Why'd you do that? Well, they were uncomfortable. It's like, okay, well, that's a really unique choice. And, uh, and so, like, just, just little things, odd things like that where you just go, man, okay, I can see you're, there's a desire to be like, very unique and creative and artsy and, you know, your own self. But I want to encourage individualism, but also want to be like, that's really destructive and a poor choice. And uh, don't ever Well, do have any of her choices actually been real destructive, poor choices? Cutting uh, socks not, is kind of fun. Remember? Yeah, yeah. What we're exactly. looking at with teenagers is look for their opportunities of separateness. Mm-hmm. You can embrace and embrace them, yeah. you know, like the carjacking. So cutting socks, sign me in. Yeah, that's great. For sure. Is she doing anything in that separateness deal that's destructive or hurtful? Uh, she wants to be a state fan. I don't know if that's uh, that's something, but you know, just I don't know how destructive that is. Hey, no, but in seriousness, like most of them have been very, you know, innocent. But it's it's the expression, um, artistic, and love it about her. But at the same time. Uh, really hard to coach and instruct because it's like, here's what's normal. And they were always going to end up on the, on the banks of normal. Like we were outside the banks. Of, well, uh, if she's not doing anything destructive with it, I would go with it. Yeah. Um, is she ever like unkind to y'all out of it? Oh, well, yeah. I, I oh, mean, for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, but like not, in a, not in a way like that's, it's just like, uh, you know, that's who I am. This is, this is kind of the choices I'm wanting to express. But and, I mean, in more like, well, y'all's way is stupid. I mean, is there a meanness ever there? Sure, yeah. But I, I mean, I think I attribute that more to the 11-year-old girl, like kind of being a younger child, um, you know, kind of the youngest sibling type thing. So. Okay, how's she doing in terms of relationships? Friends, peers? All over the board. Yeah, she's really great in right. some areas. Right. How's and, school? Um, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, okay. she's good. So there are no real red flags here, and you feel her separating, and she's got her own quirkiness, none of which is destructive and dangerous. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd let this one stay on cruise control until she does something um, that feels a little more out there and hurtful. And at that point, do love and limits. Hey, I really want to create room for you to be, you know, yourself and all that. Now you've taken your mom's socks and my socks and are cutting them up, and we're not going to let you do right. that. Okay, we start to set a limit. Sure. Or um, one of the things um, I was telling somebody earlier, I love to talk to teenagers about their relationship with me the way they talk to me and treat me more like I'd talk to you than I would talk to a child if a teenager goes oh my gosh you're so stupid that over position parent is like you will not talk to me that way young lady all right I'd rather talk to a teenager person to person I'd rather go ouch you kiss babies with that mouth (laughs) um I'm kind of really not okay with you being unkind to me um, if you disagree with me, that's cool, but if you're going to be like a jerk and be hurtful and ugly, then you're probably going to start losing stuff, so I can't let you do that. In other words, here I'm not talking down to them or in that over-scoldy position. I'm more like saying, like, if you asked a question and were ugly, I'd kind of go, dude, I'm glad to answer your question, but that, that was kind of cutting, man. I mean, hey, I think we're good. All right? I mean, I would back you off adult to adult. 
And I love talking to teenagers like that of, you know, you're being really unkind and I can't let you be unkind to me. Not how dare you be unkind, but I'm like, take your stuff, you know? So I want to create kind of a hedge parameters around her if she gets out of line. But so far, I wouldn't worry about her quirkiness until it starts to bear bad fruit, you know? All right, wrap up. I love being with y'all and you guys at home. Um, use these things. Uh, learn from these things. Try these things out. Fail with these things. Um, repair those failures. But mostly live out your relationship with your kids. That's what I said. It's, it's a relationship, not a task. You're a person, and they are people. They're just littler than you. I used to tell mine, the only difference between me and you is that I was born 20-something years for you, and God put me in authority over you. Other than that, I'm a knucklehead like you, and I'm learning like you, and I have gifts like you. That's a family together, all right? And that's ultimately that withness is what God says he lives out the most with us. And I want you to reflect that with your kids at home. Let's close in prayer. You got something? Get it real quick. Yeah. Thank you all for coming, first of all. On your way out, grab yourself a couple of sausage biscuits. You can read them in the morning, maybe for a lovely Sunday breakfast. Uh, and uh, we're always so grateful to College Hill and to Grace Bible for participating in this together. Uh, we really hope to be able to do this kind of thing again uh, in the months and years coming forward. Can we just thank uh, Dr. John Cox for being with us, uh, taking out the time. Um, thank you. And John, is it okay if I let uh, Kurt Presley, our associate pastor, close us in prayer? And then we'll That'd be great. Now? Kurt, thank you. All right, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we have, um, we have a lot to process, a lot to think through. We have a, some of us who have older kids, even all grown kids, uh, we think about this stuff as we look back down the sort of the tunnel and think about going forward with adult children, parenting adult children. Uh, I mean, at some level, we, uh, we never stop being parents uh, as long as we have children and we're alive and they're alive and uh, we just pray that um, that you would help us not to uh, parent out of fear uh, parent out of fear of the Lord is good but parent out of fear of our um, not being perfect or parenting out of a, a fear of not being able to answer all our children's questions or just sometimes we want to just sort of lock them away and um, we try to, we think we want to try to protect them, but uh, often we don't, and it's because we're just scared. Uh, and we look at it a wild, crazy world, and we so want our children to to love you and to grow up wise, and uh, it sometimes leads to insecurity and in being able to talk with them, uh, and we wind up talking to them all the time. We wind up preaching to them or um, just trying to boss them around because we're too scared to, to process with them. So there's so much here uh, for us to think through and I do pray that you'd give us grace to love you and to love our children well, to shepherd them well, to shepherd their hearts well, to help them grow up, help them learn how to think in a gospel-centered way and uh, to have wisdom, to be wise, to know how to apply gospel truth to real life. 
So thank you for this, this time and grow us and use this to build your church, your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.